0: podcasting world. Welcome back to another episode of the core consult Rx podcast. Cole is not with me today because we had to reschedule our recording day. And so in his stead, I have our longtime friend, Dr. Brian Gilbert. Brian, what's up, man? Good to have you back on the show.
1: I know it's been a while. Thanks for having me back, man. I was starting to think that you guys have forgotten about me, but <laughs> I'm glad to scratch the old core consult uh, Rx itch here. I like it.
0: There you go. Now, what happened was is you had, had such a lead on everybody else as far as guests that we felt it was better for them to let them try to catch up so that, you know, you weren't stealing the show. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, think, I was
1: trying. I was, I was texting my wife and trying to figure out if this is like the fifth, sixth, seventh time. It feels like I got to be getting close to double digits.
0: I, w- I was just going to say, I think it's sixth, but I'd have to double check myself. But yeah, man, you've been, been our, one of our longest, uh, returning guests. So welcome back, man. How's, how's life been? What's new? Anything good happening?
1: Just living it. Yeah, man. Just, uh, we're, we're slowly, uh, you know, getting past this, uh, the old pandy and, uh, hospital life is starting to seem a little bit more normal here lately. So, uh, yeah, we're in the, the thick of having new residents, getting them trained up and, uh, You know, hit the reset button uh, a few weeks ago and just uh, regrinding on everything. So trying to prepare for mid-year, try to prepare for uh, ACCP and all that fun stuff.
0: And uh, are you still leading the residency program where you're at? I am.
1: a am still the PGY2 critical care director. Absolutely. Still in the emergency department uh, and uh, going on my eighth or ninth year something like that. So it's crazy to, to think
0: that's yeah it is nuts because you when did you graduate farm school 2015 yeah we were both 2015 i I think right yeah 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 yeah, i was too um it's it's crazy because i was thinking about it the other day i'm like how long have i you know been licensed and everything i'm like it's going on it's almost 10 years a decade yeah that's not good (laughs)
1: did you and your classmates come up with like a 10 or 20 year reunion thing that you're going to do because i know that my classmates at the University of Florida in Jacksonville—we definitely have a 20-year plan. Yeah,
0: well, if there is one, I'm not real aware of it. <laughs> Which, we'll invite it, you to ours. That's fine. Don't worry dude, about it. That's that's perfect. I'm coming. <laughs> I'll be like, "What do you mean you guys don't remember me?" I'll just keep just keep asking, tell me tell me their name?" That's that's, what, that's the way my real class reunion would be. they would be like, "Who the heck is this guy?" <laughs> you just just tell me people's names ahead of time and I'll just walk up to him casually like, "Oh, Eric, what's up, good. man? It's great to see you." He's like, "Who the heck?" That'd be this awesome. This is Mikey C. He's got like 20,
1: 30,000 followers on the on the gram now. Yeah. So. So,
0: everybody else is doing other things that matter and he he anyway, he's fooling around on Instagram. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh man so uh what are we going to be talking about tonight because i think this is a topic that i don't believe that we've really touched on at all um if if we have it's been barely anything so what are we gonna be talking about
1: yeah yeah you know i was uh when we linked up i started thinking about like the topics that you and i have done together and uh started just scrolling and making sure and looking through all the past episodes and i i agree with you I, i did not think i had heard it before but Uh, Just a quick overview of acute ischemic stroke. And then um, there's sort of been a paradigm shift uh, here recently in the past, uh, I would say, two, three years now we're going on uh, where we're switching uh, agents. Uh, that we've traditionally used for stroke management uh, in terms of our thrombolytics, uh, which is one of our mainstays of pharmacotherapy for acute ischemic stroke management. Uh, So we switched uh, thrombolytics from alteplase to uh, tenecteplase. And so we're going to discuss a a little bit about just a brief overview of stroke, my thoughts on that, and then we'll discuss alteplase versus tenecteplase.
0: I like it. I'm going to be taking notes on my end, too, so I can learn something, too.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. This is a, a definitely a uh, when you talk about these two drugs and the comparison. This is where uh, the kinetics and dynamics uh, of the drug really do sort of hit home, and and you start to wonder, uh, you know, when you're in your kinetics and dynamics class, like why why do I ever have to know this? Well, this is a good topic for that. So, um, you know, it, it, in terms of breaking down this topic, I think the the first thing to understand is just like. You know, patients that come into the ER or are uh, out in the field or EMS and, and uh, have signs and symptoms consistent with stroke, you know, one of the things that you'll always hear is time is brain. Now, we certainly understand that uh, it's a, a relative process in terms of uh, neur- neurons that are lost with the amount of ischemia that occurs. But uh, essentially, when you think about stroke or time is brain, and break it down by um, an ischemic event or hemorrhagic event. So the majority of strokes that we see in the ER or, you know, that we're going to treat are going to be ischemic. Uh, I think last time I saw the the data and epidemiological data, it's about 90% is ischemic, uh, 10% uh, hemorrhagic. So basically either having a clot in the vessel or the vessel itself is bleeding and you're having, uh, you know, blood within the the parenchyma. So- Those are the two that we are going to manage, and and you certainly they're they're different. And to for tonight's talk, we'll basically be discussing uh, the ischemic portion of uh, stroke management, uh, because uh, I mean we could have a whole another topic on hemorrhagic stroke, and so maybe in like two years or a year or whatever, when we get everybody else caught back up for number seven, I'll come back and do that one. Sounds Uh, good, man. Yeah. so yeah, so you're you're basically like the first thing we need to do is try to identify, you know, is this patient having a stroke? And it's really difficult because obviously there's not really a lab test that's really great at it. Um, and there's not like imaging that is really uh, great at identifying it early. Um, you know, everything that we're talking about in this setting is definitely a time sensitive process. Um, and so you're really trying to figure out, could this be other th- things at first. And then if it, it could can't be other things, almost a diagnosis of exclusion, you're saying, okay, this this patient's probably likely uh having a stroke and we need to to act on it. So, you know, one of the acronyms that we like to use and look for in terms of signs of of stroke is the BFAST, uh, which oftentimes you'll see within um the uh the the EMS realm. And so BFAST basically means for Um, The B stands for balance, E is for eyes, F means face, A uh, it it means arms, and then S stands for speech, and then T means time. Uh, Basically, time is of the F F essence. So um, when we say we're trying to work quickly, BFAST is the acronym that we'll use. So if it's in the EMS setting, we'll get an alert from uh, our EMS colleagues to let us know that, hey, we think this patient may potentially be having a stroke. And they have different scales and different Ah, uh, validated tools that we don't really get uh, discuss uh, in terms of um, the likelihood of having a stroke or <clears throat> potentially having uh, and identifying where that lesion or the the clot may be. They have different uh, scales, but as a pharmacist, I'm just listening out for the keywords of uh, you know this is a patient that we ha- we think has uh, the, these symptoms and they're coming in. Uh, The next thing to think about is that when we discuss this, we uh, are saying that this process that's happening is basically a clot uh, within the vessels. So, you know, one of the things that we can do as pharmacy is give a very powerful uh, clot-busting medication, um, which is our class of thrombolytics known as TPAs or tissue plasminogen activators. Um, Now, the way that these... Agents were studied was basically uh up to a certain time point, um, there there is still benefit and then potentially uh harm if you cross that that threshold. And so um, you know, our, our key FDA approval is uh only up to three hours, um, but there's some data that we can actually go beyond that, uh up to four and a half safely. Um, and even more so when we talk about some of the shifts and, and stroke uh, data. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've seen is um, certainly time is time is uh, of the essence, but we also want to make sure that the tissue that is ischemic that we're going to try to reperfuse and break down the clot is still salvageable. So you may hear that a lot in the stroke literature as well. Um so you know that's one big key thing to think about um, is do we think we have salvageable tissue? And that salvageable tissue that's surrounding the ischemic area is known as the penumbra. Um, so, uh, it's a really cool, like pet name, if anybody w- wants to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's what we're trying to do. Once, once those neurons that are, uh, basically, uh, having that ischemic event, those, those will die. Those neurons are never going to come back, but we still have so much innervation, uh, within the neurovasculature to save, uh, other portions of the brain. And that's all we're trying to do and optimize, Um, So some things that you may consider or think about is, um, you know, these patients uh, will likely have uh, very high blood pressures at first. And it makes sense when you think about it mechanistically, because um, these patients have a clot within the vasculature and they're still trying to perfuse the area. So um, you may see some of their blood pressures uh, begin to increase. And this is all secondary to um, what's known as autoregulation or autoregulatory curves. So you may see that with other, other organs and it's definitely no different with the brain. Um, so we, we try to do that. So blood pressure management is certainly uh, something pharmacists do and probably the outside of the scope of this talk, but that's certainly something I think about as well. Um, but when we get down to the nitty gritty, you know, we think about thrombolytics as a powerful clot busting medication. Um, you know, there's certainly things that we need to consider. And as a clot busting medication, the number one thing that I want to make sure that I I do is I want to break down that clot, but I don't want to break down so much clot that the patient's going to bleed. Um, And so the number one thing that we're going to be out with the use of these medications is going to be um, essentially bleeding uh, and particularly bleeding into the brain. Um, And so with that, since these medications are high risk and they have the, the, uh, capability of causing such deterior uh, uh, side effects, um, we have a checklist basically of of patients that can and cannot get it, um, and so some of those like contraindications or checklists that we use are obviously any any recent bleeding, uh, any previous history of uh, bleeding into the brain, are the patients on any uh, oral anticoagulant? sound patient, um, so warfarin and factor ten a inhibitors, things like that. Um, usually exclude patients from receiving it. Um, there's some other, uh, relative and absolute contraindications that, you know, again, overall stroke management's probably outside of the scope of this, uh, discussion, but, um, you know, the ultimately that's what we're trying to do is when we exclude patients from receiving these drugs, it's, it's mainly to, those are patients at highest risk for bleeding, Um, so you're all geared up, and you, as a pharmacist, you're ready to go. You start prepping, and you get the go-ahead of, all right, we're going to give thrombolytics to these patients. So really, the the whole core topic of this uh, of this discussion is, like, which thrombolytics should I use? Uh, and that's sort of been the, the discussion that uh, major stroke centers uh, like ours and others throughout the country have been having here recently, uh, and that's... Our two options that we're going to discuss tonight is basically Alteplase, uh, which has been around uh, since the uh, mid-90s, and then uh, Tenecteplase, which uh, has been approved since, uh, I think it was early 2000. Um, so Altaplace, which you may have heard of, or Activase, um, it's a, again, the way that it's going to act is basically going to uh, bind and be your gas pedal for your endogenous TPA that you have. It's going to help uh, uh, promote clot breakdown by uh, activating plasmin uh, to plasminogen uh, and then breaking down uh, uh, fibrinogen or fibrin uh, into fibrinogen little subsets. And so um, that's also how TNK works as well. So it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And so uh, when you have a comparison or whenever you're doing uh, these types of talks, when you think about a drug class self or like, which one should I use? I I really keep it simple. I I think about the efficacies of the drugs, the safety of the drugs, uh, operational considerations of the drug, um, and then potentially uh, any cost savings associated with it. So, you know, when we start to look at the the two agents themselves um, in terms of efficacy, we've had major studies that have uh, essentially looked at this and we're starting to get more and more data that states that TNK uh, is really non-inferior to alteplase, which has been our standard of care since the the mid '90s, um, in terms of our ability to give this drug to patients with stroke and have good neurological outcomes. Um, and why is that, right? So, like, why why are that why is it non non-inferior? Um, you know, I have my my I certainly have some. Thoughts on it—that's not really substantiated or has a ton of data behind it. But um, you know, one of the things I think about uh, when comparing the drugs is the structure of the drug and the way that it's modified. So TNK um, basically has been modified to be resistant to our brake pedal in—that's uh, within our body to the thing that's going to deactivate our natural TPAs, uh, and that's called your plasminogen activator inhibitors. So. It's really resistant to that your your brake pedal, um, which is good when you have somebody that's got a big clot. You want to make sure that there's not a uh, something that's gonna you're gonna give it and then it's gonna deactivate. So that's one way. It's it's pretty uh, interesting. The other is that the TNK itself is very fibrin specific. So most of these patients too that are going to um, have stroke like symptoms, uh, potentially you're gonna have older clots that are very fibrin rich, and so. Um, you know, giving TNK in this situation makes a lot of sense because, um, it's, it's going to be more specific than, um, alteplase, uh, and it's, um, going to help, uh, break down that, those older clots a little bit better than maybe alteplase as well. Now, the data doesn't quite, uh, show that, you know, in terms of the efficacy, in terms of, uh, the good neurological outcomes, they're about the same, um. But overall, if you were to ask me based on that, uh, based on the the way that the drug is structured, I would want to go ahead and give uh, TNK in that case.
0: Um, Does does the data not show that because they just – because of the patient populations that they've selected to be more on the safe side, so to speak? Or is it just – it doesn't show it because they've looked at it and just – it doesn't play out clinically?
1: So selection bias certainly has its, it's, uh, it's certainly a factor there. That's a good point. Um, Now I will say like there has been superiority data in terms of like large vessel occlusions with tenecteplase, but the amount of like LVOs as we call them that you see within the clinical practice doesn't make up the, the majority or subset of patients that have strokes. Right. So it's always, you know, that's just a minor subset. So like the totality of the data is that they're about the same, but like, yeah, if you do have a, that, that's a good point. If you do have a large vessel occlusion, uh, TNK is absolutely gonna work better. And the reason being is that TNK, when, when you have a very large vessel occlu- occlus- occlusion uh, within the vasculature, there's more endogenous plasminogen activator inhibitor around that site, PAI. Um and those LVOS are going to be very much more fibrin specific, so it does make sense in that setting. Um, additionally, the thing that uh, we haven't really discussed yet too is the ability to go in and actually um, aspirate or, or perform a thrombectomy on the the uh, the stroke itself as well. So the thrombectomy is basically going in there and clot clot retrieving, um, and so you know the combination of the two as well. Um, has been uh, shown to be superior uh, with thrombectomy and TNK uh, with in comparison to uh, thrombectomy and alteplase. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good, good. anytime you're looking at any of these like stroke-like data, that's certainly something to consider uh, is the selection bias.
0: Well, and um, I wanted to go back real quick too, because um, you had mentioned, you know, managing the blood pressure. Um, in order to... Be a candidate to receive either agent is what is the like the blood pressure cut off because is, isn't is it still 185 is that yeah no
1: that's a good point yeah i, I didn't know how far you wanted to oh, i can go down all these rabbit holes for sure Oh man you, you uh, know we don't blood...
0: have any kind of rhyme rhymeries yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: blood pressure management yeah so that so the reason that we want to manage it when you're giving a thrombolytic so the thing to think about is if you're having an acute ischemic stroke we do allow uh, what we call permissive hypo, hypertension at first, but if you're going to receive a thrombolytic, uh, we do try to tightly manage those uh, blood pressures because patients that have uh, escalated blood pressures are at higher risk for the development of uh, bleeding into the brain, and which is obviously going to be a huge risk. And we don't want to we don't want to have that. Um, so yeah, the the when you give the before you give the dose. Um, either one, the blood pressure goal is 185 over 110, uh, and then afterwards, for the first hour, it's going to be, um, or actually the 24 hours, whatever you want to do, you're going to have strict tight tight management. It's going to be uh, 180 over 105. Um, so yeah, in those settings, I'm like grabbing labetalol, IV labetalol. I'm grabbing um, nicardipine drips. Uh, you know, whatever I can in that situation. Should I try to avoid IV hydralazine just due to sporadic, uh, onset? Um, there's some, some pretty bad data with IV hydralazine. So I try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Um, glucose management as well. Don't want anybody that's super hyperglycemic because that's associated with poor neurological outcomes as well. Um, but yeah, um, Let's see what the other things to think about. Or the other thing I was going to bring up too about the modification of the TNK itself, like the, it's basically a protein and acts, acts that way. So, um, these really smart people, pharmacologists have modified the, the structure of it, the protein uh, or the entire structure to allow it to be more fibrin, uh, specific, uh, to be more resistant. Uh, and the other thing about it that's interesting is that, um, it also, uh, has a, a longer terminal half-life so all place, the way that we give it uh and the way that we dose it is uh 0.9 milligrams per kilo uh we max it out at 90 uh, uh 90 milligrams we give the first uh 10 of that dose um over one minute uh and then we give the remaining over 59 minutes but uh, basically an hour T and K since it has a longer terminal half-life because of the modifications is an IV push so you actually uh, reconstitute it and then give that sucker over three seconds um, so obviously some some operational advantages there um, but you know one of the things that we worry about in the setting is obviously if a patient's going to bleed or if they have you know very bad blood pressure uh, control, um, is if I have an alteplase drip, I can kind of maybe pause that drip and try to get everything under control if I think that the patient's going to bleed. Or if they just bleed spontaneously during the uh, during the infusion, I can shut it off. Whereas with like TNK, I push it, I can't get it back. So uh, certainly some things to consider and worry about in that setting as well.
0: Hmm. So do you, is, have they looked at like data looking at comparing like more uncontrolled blood pressure versus low, lower blood pressure at baseline to see if um the tnk has better efficacy in that lower blood pressure group
1: there's not been like any subgroup analysis that i've looked at that look at uh basically patients that have chronic hypertension uh versus those that don't um but overall the patients that have better blood pressure control when they come in um are going to uh or you know, in an outpatient setting, are going to tend to do better uh, than the patients that don't because those vessels become friable over time. That much shear pressure um, makes them more susceptible to uh, rupture and then bleeding later on. Um, so that's why you know, having good outpatient management of blood pressure um, is so crucial. And one of the risks, modifi- we call modifiable risk factors for the development of stroke. Um, and that's being one of the the risk factors. And the other thing to think about too, with that much, with that high of a blood pressure, um, and causing all that sheer pressure, it's going to cause all kinds of inflammation as well. So, um, not to sound like a, one of those like hippie guru guys, but like inflammation is just so vital to the body. Like having, having all of that extra stress, cortisol and all that is, uh, just so detrimental, especially as I'm getting older too, like everything's creaking and cracking, like, Mm. (laughs) so much uh, having 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 my uh my bedside NSAIDs is like just been uh, uh, vital for me <laughs> uh,
0: but hilarious. yeah no i mean it,
1: it that would be an interesting study though mike i, I think uh and you talk about selection bias is uh would one agent be better uh with uh those that don't have tight uh blood pressure control outpatient versus the, it'd just be with, it would be so hard to randomize up front. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have to almost do it retrospectively, but, yeah. um, certainly, yeah, certainly a good, good topic.
0: What, what would you guess would be the outcome? Would you think there would be a difference when you boil it down to blood pressure at baseline?
1: I'm just, kidding. I would say that like the, yeah, yeah, no, the, the patients that have poor blood pressure control at baseline, are definitely going to, uh, they're going to bleed more. They're going to have worse outcomes overall, just probably because they're not healthier, you know, as it is. So, um, and I would suspect that patients that have tighter uh, control at baseline are going to do better um, just overall. Um, again, due, due to all those things of other peripheral organ damage besides, uh, you know, brain ischemia. So,
0: but, but do you think there would um, be a, a difference between the two agents themselves in that case like if oh
1: um probably not
0: I yeah. mean maybe
1: maybe potentially um, you no know, I, I I don't I don't know um, it certainly would be an interesting study. I think that you would have to have a very large sample size that I don't think uh, you know many people would pay for in a randomized study but yeah no it, it would be interesting I don't think you'd see much of a difference. Uh, overall but certainly in efficacy but maybe over safety you potentially could because of um again the the friability of that tissue which like it's a good lead way into safety so like in terms of safety data um you know overall when we think about detrimental or like sort of the worst outcomes that we can have when we give this would be the uh, bleeding into the brain which um uh, primarily occurs roughly three to six percent of the time uh when we administer and these medications, this class of medications, um, and in terms of overall uh, safety for that, uh, TNK and Altapace again have been relatively uh, similar. Um, there has been some uh, different dosing schemes associated with TNK. Um, the way that we dose TNK is zero point two five milligrams per kilo, uh, and then we max that out at twenty five milligrams. There has been some data that's looked at 0.4 milligrams per kilo, max of 40. Um, and there's been some cons- uh, consistent data now to show that like the 0.4 milligram per kilo is actually associated with higher rates of intracranial bleeding uh, with its use. So uh, 0.25 kind of seems to be the sweet spot. Um and I say the sweet spot because there's actually been uh, dosing that's looked at really small doses, 0.1 mil- milligram per kilo max at 10. And there was not, it's not as efficacious. So 0.1 is too little, 0.4 is too much, 0.25, again, right, right in that sweet spot um, of where we get uh, both efficacy and safety data, very similar to, to Alteplase. Um, the other things to think about with uh, these, these agents in these classes um, is how you manage the bleed afterwards. Um, I will say that there was a there was very little data on how to manage the bleed of Alt Place, and that had been around since 1996. Um, there's even less data on how to manage the bleed with TNK, and, and you know, for the most part, most people say oh, it's the same class, it works the same, and everything else is relatively the same. But we go back to those modifiable uh, or the the modification of the TNK itself and the structure could it potentially be, uh, could there be differences in how we manage that? Um, and so certainly we don't have enough data to, to support that yet. Um, other things to think about is that, uh, these agents can cause, uh, angio, uh these agents can also, uh, and that's probably like your second worst outcome uh, after brain bleeding or any type of bleeding, but brain bleeding, um, is the angiotema as well. So, uh, People don't know how to monitor or people don't know how to, to really uh, uh, treat that or manage that yet either. Honestly, um, there's been so few cases of T or reported TNK and K angioedema um, yeah, that, you know, we're kind of lost and not really sure what to do on that as well. So certainly an issue and certainly something that's um, hopefully we can get more data uh, in the subsequent years or at least some expert opinions on how to manage it.
0: Uh, I was just gonna ask uh, if there have you noticed any like difference like expert opinions as far as in actual clinical practice and how people handle that like have you seen them having to use a different treatment option for b- bleeding from one agent over the other?
1: Um, we I have not had a bleeding case yet with TNK. I know that with all our place bleeds, um, the way that we managed it is, and this is where uh, the abbreviations can be kind of interesting. Um, so TNK and, and alteplase are uh, TPAs, tissue plasminogen engine activators. And so the absolute reverse of that is a, uh, is tranexamic acid or TXA. Um, and so you stop or X the, the bleed. Um, and so, you know, the, the interesting part about that is, you know, TXA is used to promote uh, clot formation or hemostasis, but you know, we just had a patient that we gave this thrombolytic to because they had an inappropriate clot formation. And so um, that's something that my group here has been really uh, cognizant of is is not just giving that um, sort of empirically without evidence that the patient has ongoing clot breakdown. Um, So we do things, we use like viscoelastic testing to try to identify uh, patients that may benefit from TXA in that setting so that we can prevent the bleed from expanding, but also not just giving inappropriate, uh, hemostasis agents to, um, you know, somebody that may potentially clot later on inappropriately.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So you could basically have an ischemic stroke cause a hemorrhage because of the drug. And then they end up having another ischemic event down just soon after is that how it would play out.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it could potentially happen like that, but at that point it's like donezo. So, gotcha. um, you know, so, um, yeah. If, if you have a, if you have a, uh, what we call symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage post thrombolytic, um, mor- you could flip a coin. Mortality is like 50% at that, at that point. So uh, it's catastrophic. Um, so, you know, selection criteria and, and, uh, hematoma or intracranial hemorrhage uh, mitigation is so huge. Um, and that's why some people are su- super worried about doing TNK uh, because, you know, at this point, you're going to give it, and you can't get it back in case the patient, for whatever reason, started bleeding. Uh, now, that's always a good question of like when these patients, when I give this thrombolytic, like when do patients bleed? That seems like an obvious uh, kind of question since you're worried about, you know, could I stop? Could I stop the infusion? Could I not? And typically, what you find in the data is that the majority of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhages post thrombolytics uh, occur within four to eight hours after infusion now they there's been some reports that it happens up to 24 hours um you know these these agents have short terminal half-lives all place half-life is like three minutes um t and k's half-life is like 20 minutes but it has uh reported ongoing hyperfibrinolysis or clot breakdown um and so you don't really see bleeds like right away uh or if you do they were going to bleed anyway Right. It, yeah. Regardless of the drug, um, it, it, you know, very, very little. It has very little to do with the drug at that point if they bleed like that quickly.
0: So really doing a, you know, a, a push versus a one hour infusion, it's really not going to make too much of it or shouldn't make too much of a difference anyway.
1: That was our argument for it. We had a little uh, we had some discussions with some of our um Stroke, stroke leaders here uh, with that concern. And that's what we we discussed. We, you know, really did show the data here. And um, that's what, you know, we typically see is that four to eight hours. And so operationally, it just made so much more sense to to do it with the push. Um, you know, it's it's just, it's so much when in a bus, busy ER that's understaffed, um, like we are, like a lot of ERs are, uh, any any way that we become, we can become more efficient or operationally sound or lean uh, is certainly something that uh, many uh, pharmacy programs or even just stroke programs are looking to do. Uh, yeah, because again, totally any when you know, we start talking about like time is brain. Again, uh, we you know the, the longer we wait to administer or or are uh, preventing uh, perfusion to that area, uh, neurons are dying.
0: Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense, especially like you said, that the understaffing issues and things. Um, and of course, it ha- it's happening everywhere, but it definitely feels like it seems to be more prevalent with critical care, re- emergency medicine, which is, you know, just what we need. The most <laughs> dire situations, we want to make sure those are the graveyard shit, the, uh, the skeleton crew. R- r- those yeah, I,
1: it's it's tough. And that's, you know, that's certainly been a focus of, of you know, again, a focus of ours is trying to find those uh, operational efficiencies. and And like you said, we don't We don't want to cut corners either, like we're you know, you vet all these projects to make sure that you're not going to cause harm to patients. But um, the other thing that was, so like when we looked on paper, efficacy wise, TNK is as good, if not maybe slightly better with like LVOs, obviously like, so the totality of evidence says that at minimum, it's no worse. Safety wise, uh, the totality of evidence says that it doesn't cause bleeds or massive Uh, ADEs or adverse drug events uh, any worse than place. Operationally, it's better. And then we hit the last kicker, which was cost. So like overall, uh, T&K was actually slightly uh, less expensive, Um, which you can't really say for a lot of times when you're talking about medicine overall is that um, (laughs) having a product that is maybe slightly better, safe, as safe, and operationally better, uh, being cheaper is usually not words that rumble together often in the pharmacy department. So it made a lot of sense for us to do that. Um, the interesting fact about place and uh, Place is that they're both made by the same manufacturer, Genentech. Uh, so a lot of people are kind of c- not concerned, but they're just kind of waiting to see like what Genentech will do. Um, my personal opinion is that they don't really have much financial incentive to try to go for an fda approval of stroke um and things like that so it's it's certainly interesting
0: but there's no chance that they would discontinue one of them and not the other though, oh, right? no. uh, okay I was so, gonna say.
1: yeah i guess i should go back to the so safety wise another thing to consider or operationally another thing to consider is that there's not a ton of data there's a lot of good data with place in myocardial infarctions same thing with alteplase there's good data with uh, myocardial infarctions unfortunately not unfortunately, but like, uh, fortunately, PCI data is just that much better than, than the thrombolytics. Um, but there's really not much data on the use of tenecteplase for like pulmonary embolisms. Um, and then also catheter-directed thrombolysis. There's not a ton of data with tenecteplase. So you're kind of stuck as a pharmacy director or formulary manager to try to decide, do I add, do I only have tenecteplase on formulary? Uh, for these indications where there's not like a ton of data? I'm, I'm just assuming it's a drug class type thing. Um, or do you have uh, place and place both on formulary, um, but then run the risk of potentially having errors with issues uh, or, or with multiple agents? The other thing to think about too, I guess, safety-wise and operationally-wise is that, and I can't believe I didn't, I should, this is why I need to write it down, man. I'm, it's all coming back to me here. Is that place itself is only FDA approved for uh, myocardial infarction? So the box, which maybe you can put it on the gram, uh, a picture of the box actually has uh, a flip-open uh, type box that has dosing for myocardial infarction. So it's like a huge red flag if you're going to be doing, and it's different than stroke. The the dosing is different than stroke. So. Um, the TNK box and the TNK vial actually comes in 50 milligrams, but we only go to a max of 25 for stroke. So, one of the things we tried to do to mitigate that, to try to prevent any adverse events, is we actually removed the drug from the the box and put it into the, like this little built-in kit um, that has our stroke dosing and has our um, you know different diluents to dilute it uh syringes and all that so that we could try to mitigate some of that. Um so they uh, yeah that's a huge uh, I can't believe I almost missed that. Somebody op, some ops director would be listening to this and be like screaming at me if I hadn't mentioned it. So uh, but I, I yeah like it's that. certainly certainly yeah.
0: I like that you assume that an ops directors are listening to my podcast. That's what that's the funny part. <laughs> I assume
1: everyone's listening to your podcast at all know. times.
0: I don't think so, but I, I appreciate the vote of confidence though.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's, so there's, there's like a a lot of considerations and certainly like, um, and that was one of the things that we did recently was we actually like kind of put together a cheat sheet on how to like go about transitioning from multiple place to the next place and sort of all these things to think about. Um, And we were able to publish that in the uh, neurocritical care society's sort of like e-newsletter Um, for that reason. So people could just use it as like, again, a checklist and sort of like our, here was our, our story. And here's what we went through. Um, But yeah, I would say like three years ago, you probably had about 5%, 10% of stroke centers that were using TNK. And now uh, I would say it's at least 50, 50, if not leaning towards uh, TNK use.
0: Are there some, you know, clinicians or clinic or, you know, or centers or what have you that are still completely anti- you know, using TNK or, and if, and if so, like, what are their arguments for that position?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if anyone's like anti it, maybe they're anti it because here's another operational thing. I didn't even, I was thinking about, I've, I've kind of just been very pro TNK that I, uh, have kind of like not really talked about all place itself. <laughs> um, place, since it is FDA approved for, uh, stroke symptoms up to three hours, allows Genentech has a, a program that allows you to essentially pre-mix the drug and if you do not use the drug they'll replace it for you because they're you know again time is time is brain mm. um but since TNK is not Fda approved um, you cannot pre-mix it however so that may be somebody's argument is that I can't pre-mix it however the fact that you're the reconstitution time takes like three minutes total, and then you push it and you're done. Um, yeah. so that sort of seems like it's a mitigating factor. There's been some people that have been um, you know, and up until recently, there was not a ton of data of uh TNK use for uh I would I would say minor strokes, stroke mimics, in case, you know, in case you gave it to the wrong people, like would it still cause harm? Um, and then basically non-LVO strokes. So Um, there were some people that were maybe having that discussion about, should we give it to all strokes? Should we just give it to LVO strokes? Um, there's the operational considerations, the safety issues, obviously in terms of not necessarily the drug ADEs, but, um, the potential to cause harm with multiple formulary issues. Um, but like overall, I don't, I don't, those are kind of, Weak arguments, in my opinion. I think that there's plenty of data to to really, and if you have a good pharmacy department to mitigate some of these things and, and um, some of these potential errors, uh, I don't really know if there's a great argument against it. Um, especially coming from the same manufacturer, it's not even like you could say, "Oh, I like this one because I have a financial conflict of interest." They they both come from the same company.
0: Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's a good point. No, that makes sense. And, um, and so at this, at this point do you feel like it's going in the direction of, you know, centers will just keep both agents on formulary or they, or you think eventually it'll go to where they're using TNK, you know, primarily.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we just, I, I reviewed the data for us for whether or not we were going to get rid of all to place for potentially, um, and then use TNK for, catheter-directed situations, whether that be PE or uh, even intraarterially uh, within the brain or cardiac arrest and PE and all that, PE. Um, and there's just not a ton of data on PE. And I'm sure that the class, I'm sure it's actually probably would work as good, if not maybe slightly better, um, you know, uh, with PE and those types of situations. Um, but it's tough because I don't want to be the one to be, I would like there to be like more formal data. And actually, before we got on our, our call here, I, I like did a quick, uh, clintrial.gov to see if anybody was like really looking at it. And there's a few trials on place for PE. So hopefully we get some of that data, uh, within the subsequent years, um, to make that. Um, but how I, you know, the other thing I don't, I think about is like, Genentech, the maker of both, really doesn't want you to get rid of... They want you to have both. So I'm sure that they'll do something uh, to make it so that (laughs) we have the opportunity to keep both. So, But if I had my druthers, if like the data was fine, I I would probably get rid of all the place just due to the fact that the simplistic uh, ability to just push something, um, especially in strained uh, personnel models where we just do not have enough staffing
0: yeah, yeah. That, that, that part definitely makes a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah. is there any, is there any other agents that are being looked at in this setting as an alternative to both Alteplase and TNK? Um, not
1: that I'm like in terms of thrombolytics. No, you know, the, your, your is off the market now. Uh, nobody uses red really, um, Alteplase and, uh, Tenecta place kind of have the, the market cornered. um, in terms of, of stroke. The thing that's uh, interesting now is people are looking at combination of, of different things. Um, there, there was a recent study on the use of uh, thrombolytics and then an argatroban infusion afterwards, just trying to prevent, you know, potentially uh, clot mitigation and, and things like that. Um, there's, there's a clinical trial that's looking at uh, Thrombolytics and Tyrofiban uh, right now. So uh, some of these antiplatelet agents and anticoagulation, antithrombotics together in combination with thrombolytics, which, um, you know, we do that with PEs, we can give a thrombolytic and then straight into it anticoagulation, but um, brain tissue is a little bit different than, um, you know, pulmonary and lung tissue that, that it's, it's slightly different. Um, but no i don't i don't know if there's a newer thrombolytic on the market that i'm aware of i mean tnk is we talk about it being new but i mean it was approved in 2000 so
0: yeah
1: um it's it's one of our newer ones that's and i'm not sure that you know in terms of like our shift in stroke a lot of our our paradigm shift has been obviously with pharmacists we're going to you know get excited about the drug part but you know honestly a lot of management has shifted towards like the use of mechanical thrombectomy to go and retrieve these clots, um, you know, uh, having mortality data because these thrombolytics, uh, you know, really don't have a ton of good quality, uh, mortality data. Uh, but thrombectomy does, they have good outcomes at six months and they have, uh, mortality data associated with it. So that's sort of the way to go. Um, but certainly, um, uh, these thrombolytics can act as an adjunct to a lot of these. And then potentially if you don't have a patient that's a thrombectomy candidate, these agents may potentially uh, have a good role in in quality of life and things like that. But yeah, I haven't seen anything that's I'm aware of that. Maybe there's another agent out there. I mean, we have honestly, like you have a fairly safe agent with tenecteplase. It works efficaciously, I mean, and you can push it. So, operate like it has all, it checks all the box. So, mm-hmm. it, I think we may have the ideal agent. We just need to make sure we're giving it to the appropriate patients.
0: Gotcha. And is thrombectomy is associated with like a less bleed risk or less adverse outcome in general compared to using thrombolytics? So, it just depends.
1: Yeah, yeah it just depends. I mean, honestly, we do both. We'll give uh, thrombolytics and then also give uh, what the patient will go in for thrombectomy. So, that one's a little bit different, um, as it's, it's kind of like when you talk about like surgical techniques, it's, it's really technique dependent and it really is going to be, uh, interventionalist dependent, you know, how good they are. I don't want to like throw them under the bus because like, I got you, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not having to actually go in there and get it, but yeah, right, no, right. it's, it's, uh, if you, you know, put the best of the best in the world, like it's certainly, um, it's certainly going to, it's just, it's just going to be dependent upon, um, the interventional performing it. The other thing I think that makes a lot of difference too is the type of clot you're dealing with. Um, and you'll read in their reports, like after they've done a thrombectomy, then they've got a thrombo and they've gotten a thrombolytic like TNK. They'll, they'll call it passes, basically how many times they've gone through and trying to like grab it. Um, and you know, sometimes you'll read that the patient, um, as soon as they essentially touched it, it aspirated or broke apart and completely, which to me means that it was a very loose space clot. There was maybe a little bit of fibrin that uh, got broken down and the clot just kind of dissolved, um, which is perfect. That's like the kind of uh, clot that, you know, if you're going to have a stroke, that's perfect. That's kind of what you want is for it to dissolve and, and then allow for perfusion to the area. But sometimes you read that, you know, they touch it and it's super dense, which maybe means it's an older clot. So maybe it's coming from... Uh, that left atrial appendage for and when we're having AFib uh, and sort of calcified and just like an old shitty clot that just like isn't going to really respond to the drug. And so they have to go in there and grab it. Um, So in terms of the rate of bleeding, I mean, a a good interventionalist, it can be, you know, excellent outcomes. Um, At that point, you have to really, you really do worry about blood pressure management. And so if they're able to get the entire clot and get reperfusion all the way. Sometimes they'll try to shift that um, blood pressure curve lower. So they'll have really tight blood pressure goals. Whereas if they're not able to get the full clot, um, you know, they'll have a little bit higher blood pressure goals so that uh, you can use that area. So a lot of those things are dependent upon the, like the, the overall like outcomes of the patient.
0: Gotcha. So a lot of
1: confounders.
0: Gotcha. Um, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but just, and, and it may be a stupid question, but um, you mentioned like hy- watching for hypoglycemia kind of going into the um, the process of giving for thr- uh, thrombolytics, but is it something where if the patient comes in with uncontrolled diabetes in general, is there any kind of like protocol for hyperglycemia at onset?
1: So both. So hypoglycemia, the, one of the reasons we really tried to assess for that is that it can, uh, it can act as what we call a stroke mimic mm-hmm. uh, it's the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia really do mimic uh, the signs and symptoms of stroke. Uh, hyperglycemia, you think about like the patients that, and there's been data on this, like higher A1C um, in patient stroke uh, is associated with worse functional outcomes uh, and, uh, and potentially like bleed rates because um it goes back to inflammation of that tissue. So hyperglycemia is associated with increased inflammation, uh, is associated with more friability of that tissue, which means that they're more susceptible to bleeding. Um, so yeah, we, we certainly will look to try to keep, uh, blood glucose less than 180 milligrams per deciliter, uh, while inpatient. Um, and then, yeah, obviously like strict, uh, strict diabetes management outpatient for sure to try to prevent, uh, or secondary prevention uh, of stroke for sure. Um, all of that goes into place so blood pressure, diabetes, um, atrial, uh, AFib management, uh, rate agents, anticoagulation, all of that, like certainly uh, plays a key role, uh, in secondary prevention. And then you know, obviously, uh, antiplatelets or antithrombotics together uh, to try to prevent, uh, you know, the, the, the clots from reforming and, um, certainly you could do a whole top on, uh, you know, like outpatient management of, of, uh, secondary prevention of stroke. Well, and
0: yeah, and I'm going to hold you to that as well, but,
1: um, <laughs> I, I'm not, the accent, that's you. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll, I'll come on here and ask you questions.
0: Right on. Well, um, what about, uh, as far as, you mentioned antiplatelet, I know I'm kind of going past where we were intending to, but as far as like starting an antiplatelet for the outpatient setting, what's the time frame there between when you've given either agent as a thrombolytic and then when you can start the antiplatelet med?
1: Yeah, that's a great question too. So the, the sort of gold standard, guideline standard is that 24 hours uh, roughly after um, thrombolytic uh, administration, um, you can start uh, anti-anticoagulation VTE prophylaxis, uh, and then also an antiplatelet. Um, the other thing that we'll do is we'll get uh, uh, imaging, usually MRI, to ensure that there hasn't been any sort of like uh, what we call petechial bleeds or really small bleeds. Uh, or if the patient has a very large, like conversion, uh, symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, then obviously we won't start any of that then. But yeah, it's it's early on, and it used to be too. Like if a patient came in that uh, um, had a stroke that didn't get a thrombolytic, we would hold anticoagulation um, due to the fact that we were thought patients would be at an increased risk for the development of central, you know, basically converting into a brain bleed um, with uh, anticoagulation on board. And there's actually been some newer evidence to maybe challenge that old uh, notion that. Uh, we don't really have to hold uh, any coagulation that long. We could probably restart it right away. Um, it's there's a there's some newer data on it. It's certainly not like um, certainly probably won't be in the new guideline iterations. Uh, but there's certainly some people that are are challenging that um, in terms of antiplatelet regimens too. Like if you're if you don't thrombolytic, there's some good data uh, on the use of dual antiplatelet therapy for. Uh, 21 days, and then aspirin thereafter, um, which is which is an interesting topic and in and of itself. Um, I really think that uh, there's been a shift, too, in terms of uh, determining aspirin and P2Y12 uh, responders for patients as well, so we've been trying to really uh, focus on that as well when we have secondary prevention of either TIA or stroke uh, is looking and making sure that these uh, patients that are receiving P2Y12s are actually responding to it. Do we need to dose increase? Do we need to dose uh, decrease? Uh, and then, you know, ensuring, uh, too, that these patients are de-escalated or deprescribed afterwards, that they don't need, you know, indefinite dual antiplatelet therapy.
0: Right. And in in this, if they are going to go dual antiplatelet in the setting of, you know, post-stroke, are they typically still doing 81 milligrams? Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. Is there is there 81, a 81 pl- and then? Go ahead, sorry.
1: Go ahead. I was gonna say 81 and then um, typically we'll start um, uh, clopidogrel, um, and then that'll be five milligrams daily. Again, that's that's where I you know the pharmacists have been really instrumental uh, at advocating for the the use of uh, functional assays to determine whether or not these patients are responding to the treatment we're getting them. Um, Do we need to change agents? Do we need to dose escalate? Um, There's not much benefit in terms of uh, overall efficacy with increasing from 81 to to 325 milligrams of aspirin, but you do increase bleed rates. But there may be a subset of patients that you do have to escalate because they're just not responding to 81 milligrams uh, up front. And the same with uh, P2Y12s. Maybe maybe they're a, a, a clopidogrel uh, genotype that just doesn't, uh, uh, re- is not a responder
0: with a 2C9. Mm-hmm. Is it nine or 19? Uh, 2C9, uh like the, I think it's two. my gosh, I'm taking guess. I think it's 2C9. Um, I think it's 2C9 too, the, the allele
1: and, and you know, maybe they're not a responder, which, you know, the, when you read the reports, it's up to 30% or
0: maybe they have some sort of drug, drug interaction that, um, so, oh, we need to consider like and a, think like about polymorphism to where they're not metabolizing it to activate the correct. Computer. Okay. I got you. I'm with you now.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that, so we're able to actually functional, uh, assays, uh, to measure antiplatelet effects. Um, and so it used to be, we just throw them on and there you go. And it kind of set and forget it. But now we understand that, you know, these patients really need to be monitored for that response. I always, I always equate it to, you wouldn't just throw somebody on Warfarin and then not get an INR, right? So we don't need to do that with our, with our, uh, antiplatelet regimens and even our or factor 10a inhibitors I know they're touted as not needing uh uh monitoring or or there's really not a great therapeutic index but I still like to um obtain levels just to make sure that we're uh one compliant and then two within sort of a a uh, quote-unquote therapeutic range
0: yeah yeah no that definitely makes sense um and it is 2c19 by the way I just just oh. it to make sure yeah I was like oh great yeah. of course we guessed wrong we're both fired. Yep, that's it. We can edit it out. Edit that. <laughs> cut that. Cut that. Cut that. <laughs> no, that's that's too much work. You know, I don't edit. Yeah, <laughs> <But laughs> no, that, that that's that's awesome, man. That, I That's a great re, like review of both agents, and I, I think uh, I, I think that's super super helpful. But I, we definitely. I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know uh, if I keep, uh, if I keep taking the risk of, of taking up your time, you're going to get a call and have to leave in the middle of it. So uh, yeah,
1: fortunately I have my resident with me tonight. He's, oh, he's perfect. kind of
0: taking the reins.
1: Yeah. He's doing everything tonight. I'm I'm just kind of playing back up right now, which
0: okay. uh, doesn't know.
1: happen too, too often. So, but no, I, it's been great to come on. I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day, certainly. And uh, uh, when you post it on the gram, I'll try to uh, make sure I keep an eye on the comments too, to make if uh anyone has any questions and all I'm sure that every student that is now a pharmacist that's taken the naplex is like screaming at us that it's two C nineteen. It's two C nineteen. Yeah. Idiots.
0: <laughs> Idiots I can't believe you guys Idiots. didn't know that. <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> <laughs> ah that's the, that's the word that's like <laughs> my ultimate thing that drives me crazy i mean i on one hand i'm glad when my students whether it's my pa students or farm d students will stump me because then it helps me know where i have holes in my game but man and does it bother me deep down i'll i'll think about it for like a week i'm like you idiot you don't deserve oh, really a man we
1: no no i love i love the consults when you send it my way i love it i love it i love it
0: <laughs> no man no, and, that, and it's
1: like that's crazy we had we just said that text from somebody that was texting us oh, yeah, like a year that's ago right. that, that was a really uh, yeah. cool outcome
0: that was that was awesome yeah i you, forgot what, that was one of my of students? students that was yeah, really cool yeah. she's uh, doing infectious yeah. disease now and yeah i kind of forgot about that to be honest because it was over a year and so, like patient's doing great i was like heck yeah <laughs> yeah that was i, I dope. said uh, we we did it aka brian <laughs> i'm just the connector <laughs> <laughs> no
1: that's great no that was super awesome and I just sure remember driving home once. Like, we were coming from like a Fourth of July party or something. And you were like, My students have a question. <laughs> Put me they, on speakerphone. They, and I was like, <laughs> They thought
0: that was hilarious, man. Cause we call, I called you like in the middle of class and they just had you on speakerphone, like in the classroom. And you're like, Yeah, what do you guys want to know? We just went over fluids. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. yeah let's do it. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, they were all cracking up about that. <laughs> but no, man, you're it's Mike been great.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: know yeah, so, no somebody, and, and somebody I trust too, because that's I know, yeah. I know I know lots of people I could ask, but I need to know I'm getting the good the good info. <laughs> but uh, man, we're we'll, we're gonna definitely have to have you back on and, and go over like hemorrhagic stroke or something because that would be awesome to kind of go. Yeah, that's that yeah. I mean,
1: I, I certainly uh, I can talk that and anticoagulation reversal. That's those are kind of where I've I've ended up being my niche in the in the pharmacy world. Uh, is all the coagulation stuff so certainly that'd be awesome'd be love I would love to uh, get your thoughts as we move forward to on these factor 11 inhibitors it's certainly like gonna be something that I'm worried about it keeps me up at night when I think about patients coming in bleeding so
0: yeah <laughs> good old good, good old patients coming in bleeding always the yeah. best case <laughs> yeah. Man, well, Thanks I, I really, me, man. of course, man, I really, really appreciate your time and uh, always a pleasure to have you on. And I'm sure uh, we'll, we'll we'll have you on the, for your 10th episode. And, you know, I'm sure at some point. So keep on doing what you do, man. And we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll keep in touch and appreciate it. Absolutely, and, man. And thank you guys for listening. I uh, hope that was uh, enjoyable. And if you guys have any questions for Brian, make sure you hit him up on, on social media or LinkedIn or something like that. Um, he's a great guy and a super, super talented pharmacist and, and very good at, uh, educator as well. So um, make sure you uh, keep following, keep tabs on him, follow him. He gets published, I feel like, every other week. So lots of good stuff coming from him. Um, and then for those of you who want more traditional-style lectures instead of the kind of... You know, me going off script on the podcast, um, check out Patreon. I have all the pharmacotherapy lectures that I do for my PA students uh, as well as the slide sets you can download and all that. So um, lots of good stuff over there for what I like to think is a reasonable price of like $3 a month. Um, but uh, if you guys have any questions for me or for Cole, uh, make sure you email us. You can send us a text. You can uh, hit us up on social media, whatever's convenient for you, and we'll do our best to get back to you. Thank you all so much for sticking with us and for continuing to listen. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Have a good night.